Hello, and welcome back to KHN's What the Health. I'm your host, June Grovner, Chief Washington Correspondent at Kaiser Health News. I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're here to bring you the latest in news about health policy from the White House, Capitol Hill, federal agencies, and the states. We're taping at our relatively usual time this week on Thursday, October 4th at 11 a.m. As always, news can happen fast and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So here we go. Today, we are joined by Rebecca Adams of CQ Roll Call. Good morning. Kimberly Leonard of the Washington Examiner. Hi. And Margaret sanger Cat of the New York Times. Good morning. We also have our Bill of the Month feature this week. Allison Kojak of NPR has a story about a very expensive air ambulance ride. We will talk to her later in the podcast. And then we'll be back with our usual extra credit stories. But first, the news. Believe it or not, there are lots of things happening in Washington that don't have to do with the Supreme Court. So many things, in fact, that I have divided our topics into old business and new business, old businesses, stuff we talked about recently that needs updating, and new business as well, new business. So first up, the Senate on Wednesday gave final approval to a bipartisan compromise bill to fight the opioid epidemic, trying to let the whole idea of bipartisan and compromise sink in. President Trump is expected to sign it. We talked about this bill in some detail two weeks ago, if you want to know more about it. But Rebecca, tell us how some of the more contentious issues got worked out in the final version of this. So this is a bill that had wide bipartisan support. Actually, it's kind of interesting. Um, It kind of shows how Congress sometimes has a split personality where they pass some things, some mom and apple pie legislation overwhelmingly with bipartisan support, like the opioids bill. They also passed an aviation bill this week. They Big also, bills, big important big bills. bills. Yes, and, and spending bills. Um, but uh, on other things, they're a little more partisan from time to time. Just a tad. Just a tad. So what happened with this bill is that um, there was a privacy provision that did not get in the final version. This would have made it easier for providers to find out if their patients had a history of addiction. Didn't get in. It was a little too controversial. But really, it's very interesting if you look at all of the provisions. They found compromises and picked up a, a lot of the provisions actually were the same. And from so, the House, bill from and the the House bill. and the Senate bill. And so um, there was a provision that would expand Medicaid treatment a little bit. It would allow people, this was one where they struck a compromise actually. Um, it would allow uh, residential facilities with more than 16 beds to get reimbursement for Medicaid for inpatient disorders and uh, for inpatient treatment of substance abuse disorders. And um, what they did is they said that you could do that for 30 days for any addiction problem. So um, that was moving forward in a, in a positive direction. It kind of struck a balance between the House and Senate versions. Um, we, a lot of the things that were in there were related to trying to encourage the National Institutes of Health to find more non-addictive painkillers and trying to renew grants, trying to make it harder for people to import synthetic opioids like fentanyl. So now the packages have to be labeled, I think, 100% of the packages from China and 70% of other packages from overseas have to be labeled and you have to know what's in the packages. So a lot of it is non-controversial and um, moved forward. And, with- and Margo, I, I think you mentioned a couple of weeks ago that this this is this is a bill that while everything in it is probably a good thing, it's not going to really address kind of the heart of, of the opioid problem. 
it's just a very hard problem to solve. But I think the kind of next phase of things that are going to happen in the public policy arena are going to be a little bit more related to addiction treatment, a little bit less related to preventing people from becoming addicted to opioids that they get from a doctor, which... uh, those provisions were, there were many, many of them in the bill. Uh, we haven't really been talking about them because they weren't controversial, but that was a big thrust of this legislative package is let's just try to eliminate unnecessary uh, opioid prescriptions from doctors. Let's try to make it easier for people to dispose of opioid prescription drugs that they uh, didn't take, things like that. There's, there's with the exception of this uh, Medicaid provision that would allow for more inpatient treatment and a couple of smaller things, there's less emphasis on drug treatment. And I also think this, uh, the STOP Act, this bill that prevents uh, or makes it harder for drugs to be imported through the mail is an important kind of law enforcement piece addressing these really deadly uh, fentanyl drugs that tend to get mixed into the heroin supply and seem to be linked to the very high number of overdoses we've seen in the last few years. But, you know, trying to figure out what to do about the supply of those drugs and the consistency of them, there are a number of approaches that include both law enforcement, but also may include uh, sort of public health harm reduction approaches. There are a couple of pilots around the country where uh, certain areas are allowing drug users to test their drugs before they take them, see whether there's fentanyl in them. And we don't know whether those are going to be effective programs, but it's possible that if they are, that might be something that would be worth uh, expanding. And Kimberly, the the timing of this is is not... um coincidental coming like a month before the elections. That's right. That's right. This is something that both parties can, you know, go back to their districts and say, we were able to work across the aisle despite all the vitriol around, you know, the Supreme Court nomination and, you know, come together on this legislation. And um, as you kind of mentioned earlier, they... uh, about, you know, the two different personalities on the Hill. It was really interesting yesterday to watch the floor debate and how senators were saying it's so great that we've been able to come together on this issue, despite everything else that we're fighting about. I was watching and actually the speeches were going back and forth between talking about the opioid bill and senators getting up and talking about the Kavanaugh nomination. It was just very odd. It was one of those sort of strange days in the Senate, which we have had many. Well, um, Moving on to something else that we talked about last month, President Trump on Friday signed a minibus spending bill that includes funding for the Department of Health and Human Services. This is the first time a freestanding or almost freestanding since this bill was combined with the defense spending bill. Uh, Labor HHS bill has been signed before the start of the fiscal year, which was Monday since sometime in the 1990s. Was it what, what year was it, Rebecca? 1996 was so, the last time. So. Happy fiscal new year. Everyone. Yeah, yeah, that's right. A happy fiscal new year. Um the, the bill actually has some substantial increases for the National Institutes of Health, and it funds the last opioid bill that Congress passed. I think that was at the end of 2016. But it's actually more significant for what's not in it. Republicans had wanted to use this bill, which tends to carry a lot of policy. Even though it's a spending bill, it carries lots of policy language. That's where the Hyde Amendment that bans most abortions is, uh, lives. And there are a lot of Republicans who wanted to add more anti-abortion language and cut off funding for Planned Parenthood. And none of those things happened. I mean, it also ended up passing with pretty bipartisan backing, right? That's right. And they also in the House wanted to get rid of the $286 million family planning program that we call Title X. Title so, 10. Sorry. Yes. Yeah, sorry. Title 10. Um, and uh, they they decided the Senate wouldn't go along with that. The Senate wouldn't go along with the other provisions related to abortion. And so we've seen a more moderate approach. Um, the final bill was something that also provided a lot more funding than President Trump wanted, $11 billion more. And um, it was 
was interesting. Now we've we've got most of the federal budget, the federal spending, um, in place now. So um, on appropriations, they are able to agree that they can spend more money, and they are able to come together on a bipartisan basis. And no that. government shutdown over not funding the border wall, which everybody had been, you know, concerned about, including I guess the president, who finally decided not to do it. <laughs> Uh, you mentioned opioids also. I, I did think it was interesting. You know, one of the criticisms of the opioids authorizing legislation is that we need to do more and we need to provide more money. But you mentioned that they did provide some money. So in the last, in the fiscal year that just ended and the current fiscal year that we're in now that started October 1st, they did provide $8.5 billion for opioids, which, you know, it's it's more than we you know, provide on an annual basis to the Food and Drug Administration, but it's not nearly what a lot of advocates would like to see. I mean, some people like Elizabeth Warren in the Senate would like us to be providing $100 billion. So it is some money that, that can go towards this, but there are differences. And it's important to point out that there's always this lag that Congress passes what's called authorizing legislation that says, you know, we are authorizing to be appropriated this money. And then it takes, it's usually the next year that the appropriations bills, the spending bills actually get around to appropriating the money. That's why this bill is appropriating money from the last authorization on opioids that Congress And did. the way that this uh, set of money is distributed, there's like an additional delay because what it establishes are grant programs where states can say, okay, you know, I want to set up a needle exchange. I want to do this. I want to do that. I want to have a different kind of law enforcement approach. Uh, so they have to actually put in their applications, get them accepted, get the money, stand up the program. So, you know, Congress has put a lot of money into these grant programs over the last few years. And when you talk to local officials, they seem excited about it, but also like they're very much in the early stages. They're just sort of deploying the first bit of money now. Right. It can take a long time. I visited a community in, in West Virginia that had set up a um, needle exchange program, and they waited almost a year to be able to receive some of these grants. So um, even though they put the money up front, you know, it can take a little while. Um, another part, though, on the opioid spending is that uh, with the provision that Rebecca was talking about earlier with the um, ability to bill Medicaid to treat more patients with addiction, that will end up coming out of, you know, the Medicaid pot in order to allow, you know, more people to access treatment or at least, you know, receive inpatient treatment for a limited amount of time. And so this particular bill had not been scored was my understanding, but a previous one I think scored it around, was it? A billion. A billion dollars. And so um, some of that will end up, you know, kind of being funneled into the programs. And I do think it'll have an impact because I've, when I meet with families who've gone through this, they literally say they have no place to turn when they find out that, you know, their child has an addiction and, you know, they want to be able to keep them safe to be able to put them on treatment and things like that. And the way, the lines for getting treatment are so long. And they end up having nowhere to go, having to go to another state in some cases. And that won't have to wait for the next spending bill. That's that's through Medicaid, and that will be sort of automatic. Okay. Sorry, can I say one more yes. thing? Yeah. Yes. Uh, which is just, I think it is worth remembering that there are a lot of states that still have not expanded Medicaid as part of the Affordable Care Act. So what that means is that a lot of childless adults who are poor, uh, many opioid uh, users are in that category, even though uh, now Medicaid will pay for inpatient treatment. You have to be in Medicaid in order to qualify for that. And so I think this is another example of how we're starting to see kind of regional disparities in access to care. There are some states in which this policy change that was part of this bill is going to make treatment more available for people with opioid addiction. And then there are some states where it probably isn't going to make a big difference because a lot of people who could benefit from it are not included in their state's Medicaid program. 
And that'll be a yeah. particular problem in the South. Right, where most of the states are that have not expanded Medicaid. Right. All right, well, one more piece of old business. Um, we talked at some length a couple of weeks ago about a bill that passed the California legislature that would require health clinics at public colleges and universities in the state to stock the abortion pill, not emergency contraception, but the actual pill that can end a pregnancy up to 10 weeks. Well, California Governor Jerry Brown vetoed the bill over the weekend. Kimberly, you wrote about this. Why did the governor say he didn't think it should become mm-hmm. law? Yeah, he split with the rest of his party, and um, there's still a lot of energy to bring it back for the next governor because he's um, finishing up his term. But um, he said the reason that he vetoed it was that he said it was unnecessary. He said that in California, um, students who attend uh, public universities have access to the abortion pill. I think there was a study he pointed to that showed it was, you know, within five to seven miles of where they are. So he basically determined it as unnecessary and vetoed it for that reason. That was the only explanation he gave. It was, it was sort of interesting, given how much you know there was when the when the bill passed that the that the Democratic governor of California, I think, just maybe didn't want to wade into that much controversy, perhaps even even in California. Perhaps, I mean, but it's interesting too because California has really positioned itself as a defender of abortion rights, um, and so this was kind of one avenue where advocates who are supportive of abortion said, you know, this is this should kind of be the next step. Maybe this could be a model for other states, even. Well, we will we will see what happens next year with a new legislature and a new governor. All right. Well, on to our newer stuff. On Wednesday, we got the annual survey of employer health coverage from our partners at the Kaiser Family Foundation. And basically, it says what the last several surveys have said, the, that employer insurance is getting more expensive, that employers are asking workers to pay more of their own health costs, and that employers have no clear idea what they can do to bring down health care costs. Um, what from the report stood out for you guys? I wanted to talk about something that I think was not um, emphasized in a lot of the coverage. It's a really big report. <laughs> uh, but I think is important, which is that the percentage of employers that are offering coverage to their workers is really holding steady. And it's been holding steady for years. And I think that that is really interesting, really important, and somewhat unexpected. Around the time that the Affordable Care Act passed, all of the smart uh, analysts, including the Congressional Budget Office, assumed that once there would be this place where people could buy their own insurance, that employers would stop offering insurance to their workers. And there are various reasons why this hasn't happened, but it really hasn't happened. The employer market as expensive as it is, as challenging as I think it is for employers to continue to offer coverage, they seem to think that it is important, that it is something that they owe to their workers on a maybe uh, more moral basis, but also that it's important for recruiting and retaining the best workers. So I just wanted to highlight that, that we're really seeing this persistence of employer insurance. A lot of critics of the U.S. system say it's a weird thing about our system that so many people get their insurance through work, uh, but it seems to be uh, kind of sticky Feature you, of our system. you know, on Monday, um, which was the first day of the fiscal year, but it was also the fifth anniversary of the day that healthcare.gov, uh, you know, yes. went online and crashed and that the government shut down because Ted Cruz um, wouldn't let them pass a temporary spending bill um, over basically fighting over not delaying the Affordable Care Act. So that was, I think, think we all remember that rather vividly. I think but, the administration was happy for the shutdown <laughs> because it took some of the attention yeah. away from healthcare.gov. But one of the things, so, so I tweeted that and somebody, somebody tweeted back at me. Um, um, 
What do you think the healthcare system would look like if healthcare.gov had worked flawlessly out of the box? And I think that goes to what Margot was saying, because one of the expectations from the Congressional Budget Office is if it had worked and if coverage had been affordable, that a lot of particularly small employers who weren't covered by the Affordable Care Act employer mandate would drop, would stop offering coverage and send their employees to the exchanges instead. But I think because the exchanges were so problematic at the beginning that a lot of employers who were kind of expecting to be able to get out of the health insurance business didn't and ended up keeping their coverage. And I'm wondering how much that is now reflected in what we're seeing in these surveys. I think so, because I think there was this moment where maybe the kind of norms could have changed. Oh, look, there's this great other option. Uh, Why don't you go there? You can pick exactly what you want. You can have more control over how much coverage you're going to buy. We'll give you these dollars to use in the market. Um, And I do think that a lot of employers were spooked by how bad the marketplace was in the first year, that the website didn't work, that uh, there were fewer choices than maybe people had hoped. Um, And then maybe the normal didn't uh, reset. What else stood up to you guys from from now what we know about where the majority of people get their health insurance coverage? Right. Right. And nobody pays attention to the employer market. We take it for granted. You know, I I just find the story of deductibles pretty interesting. Um, I think, you know, 85% of us now have a deductible. And if you look at the cost over the past 10 years, it's pretty interesting. 26% have a deductible that's $2,000 or more. I think that's just kind of... How many of us do? I do. So... Um, I have my plan, my Guild Health Plan, Cadillac Health Plan, um, just added a deductible for the first time ever this year. Ooh. (laughs) (laughs) But it is not $2,000. We have a deductible, but it's not that big. Right. So so it was interesting to me, you know, premiums have not been going up in the last five years as much as in previous times. Um, But if you look over the last 10 years, you know, premiums, family premiums have gone up 239%. Deductibles have gone up 259%. Um, Wages, I think, went up something like 65%. So, um, you know, I think think it's understandable how people can get frustrated. This is all happening at a time when medical costs we're not skyrocketing. Are, are rising as slowly as they ever have. Right. So it's it's fascinating. And you can see how frustrating it is for the average worker who feels like they can't get ahead. Yeah, because because uh, basically any any wage increase they're getting is being eaten up by what they're expected to now contribute to their to their health care costs. And yet, you know, one of the things I think that the the um, the survey responded to this survey and some other ones have said is that okay, they they figure that it's not really working to keep adding costs onto the workers because it's just too much money, but they don't know any other way necessarily to to try and bring down healthcare spending. And we're we're in this sort of, what do we try next phase? Now that we've sort of exhausted the let's raise deductibles, we've sort of exhausted the the wellness stuff, which hasn't really brought down costs. We've sort of exhausted the let's not give people any choice of provider stuff. There was a really interesting study that came out last year from a a group of really highly regarded economists where they studied what happened at a large tech company when they switched from a Cadillac plan like the one that I have to a plan that was a high deductible plan. An important feature of this plan is they gave everyone the money to pay their deductible in a a spending account. So people actually weren't on the hook for the first dollar, but they felt like they were. And um, these researchers followed uh, people in this company for two years, and they wanted to see if they became better shoppers. They got smarter about saying, eh, I don't really need that MRI or, ooh, I'm going to get that MRI, but I'm going to shop around for a cheaper place. And what they found actually really discouraged them. I think this was a group of researchers that was hoping that this would show the benefit of a deductible. But what they found instead was that 
people cut back equally on important and unimportant services, that they seem to shop on the basis of price not at all. So if they continued to get care, they just got it at the place that they had gotten it previously. And that even people who had chronic health conditions who predictably were going to spend through that deductible every year uh, still were cutting back at the beginning of the year and then having like this big avalanche of costs near the end. So I do think that there's growing evidence that deductibles are kind of too crude of a tool and that they lead to some perverse behavior. But I agree with you, Julie, that a lot of these employer plans and the insurers are not sure what to replace them with. Uh, we talked a couple weeks ago. My colleague Reed Abelson wrote a story about the cable company Comcast. Oh, uh, such a great story. <laughs> and they are really interesting because they, at least according to their own reports, have managed to hold down increases in their health insurance. So they basically stayed flat for several years. And they are using a totally different approach that's very customer service focused, where what they're doing is they're giving all these tools to their employees to help them find the best provider, get second opinions, sort of concierge-like treatment that guides them through the healthcare system. And what they found actually is that if people have assistance, then they spend less than if you just kind of stick them with more and more of the bill. I'm curious to see whether that approach is going to be emulated by other companies. There certainly have been examples in the past of individual companies that say that they have a silver bullet and then when others have tried it, hasn't worked out as well. I think wellness programs are a good example of that. Um, I think it was Safeway. Uh, it was safe. Uh, you know, about a decade ago was really trumpeting the effects of this wellness program that they had implemented. And I think it turned out in the end that actually it really hadn't saved them as much as they had said. And the rush to adopt these wellness programs across the employer space, I think, has been somewhat disappointing. All right. Well, well. next item, also on Tuesday, the federal government continued its crackdown on e-cigarettes. The CDC reported that the use of Juul, which we have talked about here, that's the little, uh, it looks like a thumb drive, and it, it delivers a, a dose of nicotine vapor. Um, Juul use grew sevenfold from 2016 to 2017 and now dominates the vaping market. At the same time, we learned the FDA has performed a quote-unquote surprise inspection of Jules' offices in San Francisco and left with hundreds of pages of marketing documents. So originally, e-cigarettes were supposed to help adults quit uh, or at least get their nicotine in a safer way than than smoking actual burning tobacco. Um, is it net too late to put this genie back in the bottle now that it appears that it's sort of hooking teenagers on nicotine? <laughs> I think this has been such a fascinating, almost personal journey for Scott Gottlieb, the FDA commissioner, because <laughs> he really had high hopes, I think, for this technology as being a kind of harm reduction tool that and could help. And he wasn't alone. I no, mean, he was yeah. not alone, but I think he was, you know, he took some risk. I think there were others in the public health community and certainly people in the Obama administration who were in positions of authority who said, no, we just have to squish these down. Everything that's tobacco related is bad and can't be trusted. And I think Gottlieb felt like, well, we know that these devices are safer than cigarettes. And surely there's a way that we can allow adult smokers to have the opportunity to transition to this safer product while at the same time we try to prevent the adoption by young people. Uh, and I think, you know, he, he didn't finalize any regulations about this, but he gave a kind of roadmap for a set of changes that he hoped to make that were going to uh, really crush down on combustible cigarettes while at the same time kind of liberalizing access to 
e-cigarettes. And I think he's really had a big about face. You know, I think he he described the um, youth e-cigarette use as an epidemic. And there is growing evidence from CDC and others that the number of young people who are using these products has really increased a lot after, you know, a decade or two decades of really sharp declines in tobacco use. We're seeing now young people are using these devices. And I think it's just a very interesting regulatory story because I think he was trying to to do something right. He was trying to kind of thread a difficult needle and it almost feels like he's been betrayed. And now there's like this backlash that's coming against these companies that I think he thought had a lot of promise. Yeah. And so basically he's looking at several, well, he and his agency, they're looking at several different approaches they can take. Um, whether they should, you know, reverse this decision to allow e-cigarettes more time to apply for FDA approval, whether they should ban online sales of e-cigarettes, or whether they should say, you know what, no more flavors allowed. A lot of these flavors taste like desserts and fruits, and so there are yeah, like charges. bubble gum flavored, you know, nicotine. Yeah. But not, vaping I think we should say that Juul, which is the dominant product and the one that got rated this week, they don't have some of these mo- the sort of most. Uh, child appealing flavors. They do have, I think they had a flavor that was like a creme brulee flavor that maybe they've phased out, but that was certainly part of this expansion and may have appealed to young people. But their most popular flavor is like something kind of herbal, I think, not uh, not a candy flavor. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just one of the tools that they're considering in terms of, you know, how to reduce teen use of these products, because they say they don't want a whole other generation addicted to nicotine. Well, while we're on the subject of uh, FDA Commissioner Scott Gottlieb, he also announced a crackdown this week on one of the many ways that brand name drug makers managed to delay the entry of generic copies to the market, in this case by making it harder uh, for the generic manufacturers to get samples of the original drug. Um, apparently, uh, the brand name uh, drug makers have been using these citizen petitions to try and delay uh, entry of generics and to, to to try and delay the ability of generic makers to to get copies of the original drugs. Um, I read in one story that 92% of these citizen petitions are actually coming from the brand name drug makers. I mean, obviously, this is a really, you know, the, the question of, of bringing down drug, drug prices is huge and varied. But I mean, this seems like at least one sort of small, concrete way to, to address some of the, the abuse. Yes, and I think it's part of Scott Gottlieb's attempt to try to spur generic competition to brand-name drug companies. Uh, Last year, the FDA approved 1,000 generic drugs. They've been moving forward. It's kind of a part of a broader plan. And he said that these citizen petitions that the brand-name companies were putting forward, one, they drain the agency's time. They waste the time of people who otherwise would be, you know, reviewing drug applications. And... He, he listed a, way, a series of ways that they will co- consider whether this actually is something that was intended to delay action. So they're going to be looking really closely. They're also potentially going to be putting forward information to the Federal Trade Commission for the bad actors that they are seeing, and they're going to be putting out a report to Congress. So, But they're also going to be making it public. I mean, basically saying, you know, that they're going to say that we're denying your petition because we think you're doing it purely for the purpose of delaying this, you know, sort of the, the, the public shaming. I have no idea if public shaming of brand name drug companies <laughs> will work, but that is one of the, the efforts here. Absolutely. Right. And as we see that the rest of the president's blueprint on drug prices 
it's kind of moving along very slowly, inching along, not making a ton of progress. This is one of the ways that Scott Gottlieb wants to say, hey, we're doing our part. All right. Well, that is the news for the week. Now we will play my interview with Allison Kojak about the current bill of the month. And a reminder, if you have a medical bill you would like to share with us, we will post a link on the podcast page at khn.org. So here is the interview. We are pleased to welcome back to the podcast Allison Kojak of NPR, who wrote the latest Bill of the Month story. Thank you for coming in, Allison. Thanks for having me, Julie. So this month's patient is actually a doctor, too, right? Who is he and what happened to him? So, yeah, he's a doctor in Texas. He lives um, outside of Dallas. His name is Naveed Khan, and he's a radiologist. Um, and he went out for an ATV ride with a friend. He said, tells me it was the first time he's ever done that. And, and for people ha- who don't know, what's an ATV? Oh, an all-terrain vehicle. It's one of these little sort of buggies that you ride on dirt paths in the woods and stuff. And they were up near the Red River on the border of Texas and Oklahoma riding on the, you know, rocks and, and sand and dirt around the river. And... The ATV tipped over while he was driving and landed on his arm. It was his left forearm, and it was pretty much crushed and had a horrible soft tissue injury. Um, he got to the local hospital. Uh, the doctors, he knew it was bad, but they knew they told him it was one of the worst injuries they had ever seen and that he needed to get to a trauma center. Um, and the trauma center is a good two-hour drive away. I made the drive. Um, and so they sent him in a medevac helicopter. Uh, the helicopter base was directly across the street from the emergency room. Uh, so it was pretty easy to get him over there. Uh, and he flew to a hospital in Fort Worth where after many, many surgeries trying to save his arm, they finally realized it was sort of beyond saving. And he had his arm amputated last December. So... Uh, it's not like this air ambulance was an optional thing, right? It, it wasn't, you know, you can, we can just wrap you up and send you over. Well, or, yeah. or it might be easier to go by air. It was certainly, from all the doctors I talked to, it was better to go by air. I mean, in the end, he lost his arm anyway, which is very sad. But they they said pretty much the only way that they could possibly save it is to get blood flow to that arm as fast as possible. And, you know, when you're in that situation, laying in an emergency room on painkillers, in pain, with a tourniquet around your arm... It's not the moment to sort of say, no, I'd rather drive. (laughs) (laughs) Or or be driven. So so how much did this uh, air ambulance end up costing? Yeah, that's the thing. Uh, He got a bill uh, for $56,000. He heard from them while he was still in the hospital, got the bill, you know, several weeks after he was released. They did uh, uh, go to his insurance company and make a claim. And that was at first rejected, but finally the insurance company paid twelve, which leaves him with a balance of $44,000 that he and his insurance company and the air ambulance company are now negotiating over. Why on earth does it cost so much? Well, so that's what this story, what we dug into. It's really interesting. At first, I, of course, thought this is an outrageous amount of money. And then I talked to the people in the air ambulance industry and sort of went through this with them. And they explained to me that these these air ambulance bases cost a lot of money. It's about $3 million a year just to keep it staffed. It's it, highly trained people, a very sophisticated helicopter. They have to be on call all the time, kind of like people in an emergency room or a fire department. And then they run about 300 runs a year, but that still only works out to about $10,000 a ride. And what they are doing is billing the people with good insurance and who have money, they call them private pay, more to cover for the people 
who are covered by Medicaid or Medicare, who which reimburse less. Medicare reimburses about $6,500 a ride on average. And, and so they basically admit that they're overcharging this guy. Exactly. They did tell me that. I mean, they, they said it in a way that didn't use those words. I wouldn't say that. But yeah, they, they, they are counting on him to pay the bills for people who don't pay. One of the things that surprised me in the story is that it says that these air ambulances aren't regulated sort of as part of the healthcare industry. They're, I mean, the rules are, are basically the FAA rules. The they federal, are. They the are, federal yeah. you know, air rules. So they, you know, they, the people who serve in the air ambulance, the, the nurses and the paramedics, of course are regulated by the healthcare regulators. But yeah, the ambulances themselves, the helicopters have to run on rules designated by the FAA, the Federal Aviation Administration, because they're aircraft and they are flying through the air and that the states cannot regulate them. And um, because there have been so many of these discussions about outrageous air ambulance fees and the people who get these bills were in such a vulnerable place, just like this Dr. Khan, who is now learning to live without an arm, a lot of state-level legislators have been asking for the right to regulate these these ambulances so that they can basically lower the prices for consumers. Um, but another interesting thing I learned is the industry could also do that because they have more capacity than is necessary. And that's one of the interesting things. Um, they I got, the air ambulances. Yeah, there are too many air ambulances for the number of patients. Uh, it's that simple. Um, I talked to a, a doctor at the University of Chicago who actually runs their air ambulance system, but he also follows the industry very, very closely. And he said back in the 90s, most air ambulances ran more than 500 flights a year. Now they're only running about 300 flights a year. So I did the math, which is very easy. Um, Three million divided by 500. And you get down to about $6,000, 6500 You know, that, and if that were how many flights each helicopter flew a year, that Medicare reimbursement would be plenty. Although they would be, I mean, these, I assume these are for-profit industries, or, or or are they? I mean, th- that's just enough to cover their costs, right? Right. Well, it's enough to cover their costs, yeah. But the $12,000 Dr. Khan's insurance reimbursed would, would certainly be plenty. Yeah, so the industry has been privatizing over the last two decades. They used to mostly be run and owned by hospitals, and they would be a way to, you know, go pick up patients and bring them in. Um, but now, oh, since... The early 1990s, when Medicare actually raised its reimbursement to $6,500, all of a sudden that became a profit center, a, a, a place where money was waiting to be had. And private companies started buying up these individual uh, air ambulances from the hospitals even. They would buy it and they would take it over and they would run it on behalf of the hospital. And then those got uh, merged together. And now most of them are owned by two big private equity companies. And, you know, clearly they're looking to make a profit on this and they they want to, they, they expanded a lot in that time. They added too many helicopters. So now they need to earn way more money per ride in order to cover their costs and make a tidy profit. I feel like we've heard this story before in healthcare. Um, so what can patients do? Is there anything patients can do? Well, I think there is. The representatives from the air ambulance companies, they made it very clear to me that they do not want to go down the litigation route with patients. They don't want to uh, send these bills to collections, and they want to settle. Um, and so patients are well advised to negotiate with them. And they, it was an interesting code that I heard over and over again, which is we will come to an agreement that is in the best interest or that is 
adequate or appropriate for the person involved, which essentially means, in my mind, that they are going to figure out how much money you have, how much money they can get you to pay, and pay it. So Dr. Khan and his wife, who are doctors, may have to pay more than a couple who have not doctor jobs. Um, or last month's bill of the month, who was a high school teacher. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So someone like that might might get off with just the $12,000 from the insurance company. I'm imagining there's going to be a longer negotiation with the Khan family. Um, but they made it abundantly clear. It, it's not a good look for them to be suing punk uh, people and putting liens on their homes. And this uh, expert at the University of Chicago I talked to said they got in some trouble over that many years ago. And so they are much more hesitant now to do anything that looks like uh, putting patients into financial trouble for an emergency situation. Oh, well, we will see how this all plays out. Thank you for coming in. Allison Kojak of NPR. Thanks for having me, Julie. Okay, we are back, and it's time for our extra credit segment. That's where we each suggest a story we read the past week that we think others should read, too. Don't worry. If you miss it, we will post the links to these stories on the podcast page at khn.org. Who wants to go first this week? Uh, Margo. I wanted to highlight a story from The Times uh, by Livia Albeck-Ripka called In Australia, Cervical Cancer Could Soon Be Eliminated. And this is just so fascinating to me. I remember I was a reporter in New Hampshire when the first vaccine for uh, human papilloma virus hit the market called Gardasil. And it was really heralded as this potential public health uh opportunity because cervical cancer is a very common cancer. It's, it continues to kill a lot of women. It also is a reason why women have to have uh, pap smears all the time, often have to have uh, their cervixes, uh, you know, uh, surgically altered because they have uh, early stages of cancer. And it turned out that this kind of cancer is caused by a virus and that a vaccine is an effective way of preventing people from getting that virus. And in the United States, adoption of this vaccine has been okay, but not totally widespread. The idea is that if children get it before they become sexually active, that prevents them from ever getting this virus that could cause them to have cancer. Uh, but there's been some kind of cultural resistance to the idea that young people who are not sexually active should be getting a vaccine for a sexually transmitted disease. I think there also are just some logistical challenges with getting vaccines into children of this age. We have a really good system for giving vaccines to infants and to um, young children. But as children get older, they don't have as much contact with pediatricians, and it's just harder to keep track of this. You need three shots of this vaccine to get the complete dose. But the country of Australia has been really devoted to this. They have 77 percent of children, both girls and boys, getting this vaccine. And they anticipate that by 2028, fewer than four women in every 100,000 will be diagnosed with cervical cancer. So that's basically an eradication of this disease that is a huge problem around the world and continues to be a big problem in the United States. And just a model for, you know, vaccines can really make a huge difference in eradicating uh, important diseases. Kimberly. Yes. Um, I kind of went back and forth with choosing because I wanted to do something related to, um, you know, the Kavanaugh storyline because I was so impressed by all the medical and science reporting that came out of that. So I finally settled on this piece um, from Politico uh, called Kavanaugh's Drinking Spotlights Trump Quote. Trump's, quote, abnormal abstinence. Um, the president does not drink alcohol at all. He says that he's never had a drink. And um, one of the reasons is because his brother, Fred, um, succumbed to alcohol addiction and died from it. And um, it's been really interesting to watch, you know, the back and forth, you know, not just about Kavanaugh's 
sexual assault accusations, but what his drinking habits were like in high school and in college. And so here you have a president who is in the middle of, of all of this, who doesn't drink at all. And um, the ways that he, re- he has responded to it have been, have been interesting. So um, that was my selection for this week. Rebecca. So I chose something from The New Yorker, The Comforting Fictions of Dementia Care. It says many facilities are using nostalgic environments as a way of soothing the misery, panic, and rage their residents experience. So the reporter talked about different ways that nursing facilities are changing the environments inside nursing facilities. And in one place, they put up sort of a, a fake old-fashioned American square. It's, it's you know, you've got porches and lampposts and things that are meant to mimic the town that these people live in. And other facilities are trying other things. They're, for example, tape recording the the voices of their relatives and playing them as if it's a phone call that the person would be taking. So it struck me that, you know, this is, we we've evolved over the years in many ways on this issue. And, you know, there's been legislation in 1987. There was a, a law that passed that would, that made it tougher to, to restrain people. And we've gone back and forth in the best way to take care of people when they can't remember things anymore. And it's a really touching and sensitive issue. Um, something that struck me personally because I just went through it with my father-in-law. And um, one of the things that the magazine questions is, you know, what's more important, happiness or dignity? And it's a really hard thing to deal with. It is. It's quite a story. All right. Well, mine is this very wacky story from John Tazi at Bloomberg called Thousands of People's Insurance Appeals Went to a Doctor Fed Say is a Fraud. And that headline kind of downplays what happened here. The story is about an orthopedic surgeon from New York who was found to have been fraudulently billing for surgeries he didn't actually perform and, as an aside, was being sued for malpractice over some surgeries that he did perform but not very well. He eventually pled guilty to one count of health fraud, but while he was waiting to be sentenced and later, after he was released but still on home confinement, he managed to start another fraudulent business, posing as another doctor to review medical records in coverage disputes. Uh, That went on for something like four years. He collected nearly $900,000 in payments over that time. And by the way, he mostly recommended that insurers deny patients the care that they were seeking. Uh, So now that the insurers and the third-party review companies and the patients who were denied care are all trying to pick up the pieces um, because, you know, some some of them might still be able to get the care that they were denied. Meanwhile, the, this doctor is now being, you know, charged again, including with, you know, identity theft for taking the identity of a doctor who did have a license since he didn't have a license anymore. It is, it, you know, it basically illustrates that health fraud is really lucrative, and that's why people do it. Um, just the idea that this this particular doctor practiced two different kinds of health fraud um, makes it all the more interesting. So that is our show for this week. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We'd also appreciate it if you left us a review on iTunes. That helps other people find us too. Also, as usual, you can email us your questions or comments. We're at whatthehealth, all one word, at kff.org, or you can tweet me. I'm at Jay Rovner. At Sanger Katz. At Leonard K.L., at Rebecca Adams, D.C. We'll be back in your feed next week. In the meantime, be healthy.